Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, uh, sponsored by First National. I am Adam Pawatic. My co-host is Aaron Cameron, and our guest today is Riaz Punjani, who is the Vice President of S2S Environmental. Welcome, Riaz. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, Thank thanks you, for Adam. coming. It's my pleasure. Riaz, why don't we why don't we start just from the beginning? How did you how did you get involved in S2S Environmental Real Estate? You know, how did you get okay. started? Well, we got to go back a little while now, <laughs> <laughs> but um, actually from university, I went into the engineering program and uh, my educational background is civil engineering. And I quickly realized after my second year that I didn't want to design bridges. <laughs> I didn't want to build buildings. So I tried to look for something else within that engineering. And um, what was new and exciting at the time, this was you know mid late 80s, was environmental. So I just took all the environmental electives and graduated with the civil engineering degree, but it was an environmental option really, which hadn't yet came into being. So that's where it all started. And I was very fortunate. As soon as I graduated, I got a job in environmental consulting and haven't left it since. It's interesting and kind of unique to see you see a passion for environmental uh, concerns with real estate and uh, move into it. Yeah, it's it's been sometimes a challenge and you sometimes wonder, are you in the right space? But, uh, you know, the last 25 years have told me this is a good place to be. So how long have you been at S2S? So S2S started uh, 2003. Mm -hmm. So my business partner and I, we started that company really to uh, service the, what we call, you know, the uh, real property owners, whether you own, whether you're financing, whether you're a property manager. If you're dealing with real property, then there's environmental due diligence that uh, we can provide that service. So that was 2003. And now uh, almost 14 years later, you know, with uh, almost 40 staff now, we provide consultant services across Canada. So there's there's a there's a 14 year gap there in that that chronologically uh, chronology. There's so, time in prison, I think, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yes. what did you do? How did you get into environmental? You said you, you kind of chose it because you, you didn't want to build bridges. But what's the what's, what happened in between that right. and, and S2S being founded? So now you're delving into my misspent youth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you know it was one of those things where I graduated. Uh, we were stuck in a recession, so I just took basically pleaded for a job and said, you know, pay me later, just give me an opportunity. And uh, I was literally um, fortunate enough to get involved with, uh, for those who'd remember, the old Goodyear tire plant in South Etobicoke, which is now Daniel's Lakeshore Village. Full disclosure: I live in one of the townhouses of that development. Uh, so you may not want to know the story. No, I do. No, I actually, I do. I don't know the story. This isn't. This is planned. So, so what is the story? I'm curious. Wow. So, for those listening, this is a development in, in New Toronto, uh, at the corner of basically Lakeshore and Islington, between Islington and Kipling on the north side of Lakeshore. Right. A very nice area today. Yes. But uh, 25 plus years ago, uh, the old Goodyear tire plant is about a million square feet uh, of uh, manufacturing, um, on about six stories. You're going to tell me why the trees in front of my house died, aren't you? <laughs> no, we did a good job cleaning that okay. up. But, <laughs> but no, um, it actually sat vacant. It was a vagrant's paradise. I think there were back taxes of an uh, incredible amount of money. And uh, from what I understood, the developer had picked it up from the city for a buck. Wow. But the environmental liabilities were huge. So that's really where I started. And we decommissioned. And that was really at the start of the decommissioning guidelines. And uh, we. So what year that. was that? Well, I was there eighty nine, ninety, and uh, early ninety one. So. What, so let's let's get into that. What kind of contamination did you discover there? A little bit of everything. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely an eye opener. Um, you know, finding uh, what we call liquid product, gasoline, diesel, just floating on the water table. Um, finding tank after tank after tank, just buried in the ground and abandoned. Was uh, that in line with kind of standard usage of property at the time, or was there something more going on there in terms of? either the tenant or the owner's mistreatment of the property? No, you know, I just think that was industry. A hundred years of industry there of uh, manufacturing. Yeah, how long had that Goodyear plant yeah, been in existence? It, it'd been a very long time in okay. uh, manufacturing tires, and uh, they did a great job at it. Uh, it's just you have a lot of waste. And generally, they had a large property, and uh, you could leave that on your property. There weren't really strict regulations at that time of how you manage your waste. So it sat and also the underground tanks they really didn't have a great understanding that uh, you know these tanks do corrode over time 
And then it re remained vacant, as I said, for mm -hmm. a number of years. So that uh, deterioration also added to the problem. But we had soil and groundwater problems. There was asbestos problems. Pretty much the whole gamut. So when you have asbestos problems, let's kind of dive right into sort of specifics. For a property like that, you know, I guess there's really just more the risk of the, the demolition, right? That the asbestos fibers get into the air while you're in the middle of demolition. Is that is that true? Exactly. So there's regulations in Ontario, and they've been around for a very long time, that talk about doing what they call the designated substance survey. So you'd actually need to look at where are your designated substances, asbestos, lead, PCBs, um, and you'd want to have those removed before you actually demolish the building. So. Now, for the most part, though, you know, the, the sites that you're looking at and the, the, the environmental contamination that you're seeing, whether it be asbestos, PCBs, lead or not, um, it's not for too soon to be demolished buildings. No, actually, the big thing I'm finding now in the last at least five years, I'd say, would be the redevelopment. So here you have your industrial building that um, somebody wants to convert into lofts. Mm. So they're taking it back to what we call base building. So now you're taking everything out. So that would involve asbestos on pipes, that would involve lead paints, that would involve uh, asbestos floor tiles, uh, probably uh, PCBs in there, but, you know, light ballasts. Mm -hmm. And the acceptable threshold for residential obviously is much lower than it is for continuing an industrial exactly. use. Exactly. You can have an industrial worker where you pay them and uh, they know what they're getting themselves into. They'll put on their mask or they'll put on their gloves and they'll go to town and that's what they do every day. But... Uh, you can't really ask a residential condo owner that, by the way, you know, we have lead in the paint and uh, it's just part of life. Yeah, I'd have to ask Aaron to do that for his uh, home where he just brought home his brand new baby might be a, <laughs> a bit much. No, that's, is that why he's glowing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I, um, I, you know, maybe let's take a step back and just talk about S2S from a, from a 30,000 feet. I mean, what is, what is S2S's brand? I mean, what, what, what kind of things do you guys bring to the table that may, you know, differentiate yourself from, from all the other environmental, um, you know, environmental site assessment engineers? And quite frankly, what is the industry like right now? I mean, are you seeing a change from when you joined and, um, sure. Let's talk about it well, just, just in general. Yeah. Let's, uh, if we go back to my, uh, as I said, the misspent youth. So, there was for the first you know 10 12 years of my career i worked with a, a few very well-known environmental consulting firms and uh, learned a lot had a chance to work across canada and uh, took that knowledge and uh, when i came back to ontario back in uh, 2002 and said well i enjoy building and looking at uh, the whole picture and that's really something that i felt s2s we could bring to the clients to give them that value-added service. That, is that something you felt was missing from, from the industry? Sometimes. I mean, as, as companies grow and uh, sometimes you really have competing requirements or you're trying to be everything to everyone, we felt there was a niche market, and that was with the real property owners. To elaborate, you mean, you mean understanding where they're coming from? Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, environmental, uh, unfortunately for them, it's a nuisance. They are trying to get the transaction done. They're trying to get the, the loan. They're trying to sell the asset. You know, environmental is lost on their list, but it's a very important part. Mm -hmm. So for S2S, our job is really to go in there, uh, do good work and present the information so they can make a decision. Is this a buy? Is this a sell? Is this a finance? Hmm. And just full disclosure, or, or, or maybe I think... I think we just have to say this being lenders and from First National is, you know, it is one of those things. I mean, I can put very few things on my list that can absolutely scuttle a deal and, and, and contamination or environmental issues is, is number one as far as, oh, I thought that was a great, a great transaction. I thought that was a great financing and here we go. And then all of a sudden it's the 23rd hour and there's environmental contamination and the deal's off. Like it really does have that kind of impact yeah, we, often. We, we pride ourselves on, uh, flexibility, but there's very little flexibility when it comes to environmental. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Riaz, do you want to talk about some of the unique um, types of contamination that may or may not be remediatable? I mean, remediation, I guess, if you're if you're unfamiliar with that term, it's just the ability to clean up the site and the time frames that that take. I mean, sure. what's, what's, why don't we talk about specifics, a little bit of the type of contaminations you see? And Well, the first thing is, you know, without being, you know, the doom and gloom is things have got a lot better. Uh, the technologies, the legislation, understanding what really constitutes a contaminant. So knowing that, doing a thorough investigation, you really have now the tools to properly assess that. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, let's be practical. We're talking about human health risk. So we want to make sure that from an environmental standpoint that we're not causing adverse effects, we're not causing harm 
to the occupants, to the users of that facility, whatever it may be. Uh, but yes, you know, we've seen soil and groundwater contamination. And in some cases, it's external to the building footprint. It's something that could be relatively easily dug up. Uh, yes, there's a cost. It's a nuisance. Uh, sometimes you're chasing contamination and that can become um, a nightmare, you know, for mm-hmm. the property owner because they're, they're wondering when is it going to stop. But with the technologies and looking at uh, the holistic approach, generally we can find that uh, there's a solution for most problems. It's a challenging, I mean, it must be a challenging position. I mean, I, I, I can really appreciate what, what skill set you have to have and your, your firm at large simply because it, it can be fairly subjective at times, right? And, and what you ask one environmental consultant uh, versus the other might have differing, differing answers. Absolutely. And uh, Aaron, I think you hit it on the head. The issue that we really find is who's holding the trigger. And nine times out of 10 is actually the lenders. They're the ones who actually are saying, well, are we going to lend on this property or not? So you may have a vendor who's ready to sell, everything's looking good. You even have a buyer that, to some extent, understands the environmental liability and says, well, I'm willing to live with this. Mm -hmm. But can they find someone to finance a property? So we come in and we put that business sense on the table and say, well, look, here are your options. Uh, Legislation, and we've done work right across Canada. So uh, in most cases, yes, it's protection of the environment, but there are many ways to manage that risk. Perfect example, I think uh, one of my first interactions with Riaz when I was when I was brand new at First National, one of the first deals I was working on was a apartment finance. And that one, they ended up finding a little bit of hydrocarbons. It did not appear like a big deal at first. Uh, the vendor was willing to proceed. The buyer was willing to proceed because, of course, you know, buying apartments is uh, competitive and you don't want to let this one go. Uh, but us as the financier, of course, we, we put the brakes on it. And then once they got into the work, it turned out that the, the problem of the property was much larger than originally thought and the bill associated with grew and the deal eventually died. But perfect example where, you know, kind of casual attitude towards that risk just by the, the desire to close on a property kind of overshadowing, uh, you know, the recognition of that real risk could have led that buyer to lose 20% of the value of his property, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, that's not a, that's not, not a realistic unusual. number at all. I just, I just wanted to connect the dots for those listening that may not have the same familiarity that we do. You know, the the the, the, the proponent, uh, the, the, the landlord, or, or if they're buying a property, is responsible for getting an environmental site assessment, as we call it, sort of a third-party report, to the lender for us to review. And, and we require reliance on that report from the engineer. So whether it's ordered by the borrower or ordered by the lender, at the end of the day, the lender has to rely on that report. And quite frankly, for us, from a lending perspective, it gives us the comfort that we've had a third party, a professional engineer, an environmental engineer, look at the property objectively and, and come to us and say there's no further testing required or uh, here are the risks and we believe it's it's acceptable or not. You know, at the end of the day, the lender must be satisfied, right? And that, to, exactly. that, to your point, I, we, and here's why. And the reason is that we're looking at this saying, okay, well, we might be lending, let's say 70% of this purchase price. So we're putting 70% of the equity or the, the, the value into this property. Uh, and if it's not um, satisfactory, if the environmental is an issue, and all of a sudden, let's say our landlord decides to walk away, and now we end up owning this property, can we actually sell it for the value that we're saying it's, it, it, it's worth? And quite frankly, the reality is if there's a significant environmental contamination, that property loses its value substantially. And so that's just a risk that lenders, uh, First National being one of them, is just unwilling to take. And there's another twist. It's not just the risk and financial, but there's also the reputation. Uh, We've been in situations where, yes, there's contamination, and we've been able to mitigate that through engineering controls. So what I mean by that is, okay, you have some hydrocarbon, Adam, as you mentioned, uh, in the subsurface, we were able to create an engineering system where those vapors are m- mitigated. Maybe you have a ventilation control system, maybe you have a vapor extraction system, but we're able to show with good science that this contamination is not causing harm to the occupants. That in itself, though, you, one needs to get the head around. Mm-hmm. So now you have somebody, and if it's a, a landlord situation where we're working with them, uh, you have a tenant, there has to be some level of disclosure. And uh, they may say, well, no, this is not acceptable to us. So that reputation, uh, that understanding, you know, now you've got a depressed property. Yeah. And it makes life difficult for everyone around. So our job is to try and ease that burden. And there's there's nuances to it, right? If it's a retail office or industrial building, it's there's probably a little bit more leniency. Uh, you know, we've seen things. First National has financed sites with contamination where it was under the parking lot. 
right? So it really wasn't under the building. It was basically a, a leakage from some from some source, and we just deemed it to be sort of basically immaterial to the asset because well, it really made no difference. It dissipated over time. It dissipated or... over time. It's in the parking lot. I mean, I guess he could pay, make the guy pay $100,000 to go dig it up, but we just decided it wasn't, it had, had basically, it did not impact the value of the asset. And so um, from a conventional perspective and conventional meaning not, not CMHC insured financing, there's that leniency for the lender to make the decisions. Of course, if you're talking about apartment buildings where you've got people sleeping at night and residing in those spaces, it becomes a totally different discussion, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, the usage... The real health and safety issue at that point, right? Yeah. And the usage is really now, if you look at the more um, uh, progressive legislations, and that's happening right across Canada, they do look at the usage very carefully. So uh, the Ontario regulations we have now with the record of site condition requirement, one of the main reasons that was put into force is if you're moving to a more sensitive use, so commercial to residential um, daycare use, you really do need to follow a very prescriptive process. Now. Can you highlight what a record of site condition is? Sure. So here in Ontario, uh, we have a regulation which basically states that you need to meet certain standards in soil and groundwater for certain contaminants. So these contaminants, it's not to say that you need to get rid of them completely. So if you have gasoline, you might have certain types of components of the gasoline in the soil and the groundwater. Um, there's a recognition that certain levels will not do harm, uh, or at least shouldn't do any harm. And the legislation now says, well, you're allowed a certain limit. So if it's a residential property, maybe that limit's 10. If it's a commercial property, industrial property, maybe the limit's 100. So those are the numbers you need to hit. Um, if you're over those limits, then there's the chance that something could go wrong. To get a record of site condition, all those contaminants need to be below the target values. So if you can demonstrate that either through a cleanup or through an investigation, then you can apply for a record of site condition. And those are administered by the Ministry of, Env- of the Environment. That's so it's correct. A federal, this is a federal... Uh, it's a provincial. It's a provincial. Sorry. Yeah, so it's... And does it work? You know, maybe let's let's talk nationwide for a little bit. Get out of Ontario because S two S is is national in scope, and you will do environmental uh, assessments basically anywhere in the country. Yes, we've been fortunate. Uh, even though our offices are here in Ontario, we actually have uh, the benefit of clients who will take us where the work is needed to be done. So we've done work literally coast to coast. And what are the differences? Is it basically standard across? I mean, I'm not even familiar no, if, if, it, if I'm doing the same site in Atlantic Canada versus, you know, Alberta. What, what kind of, what are the variances? How, how different is it? Well, now there's a bit of a uh, convergence. I would say if we went back 10 years, there was quite a change. Even in Ontario, I would say one of the more progressive provinces might have been British Columbia. They had the contaminated sites regulations uh, for quite a while there. But it's something that I think all the provinces, you know, the from back from the ministry of, uh, you know, different ministries, the council, they actually called it the CCME. It was the Canadian Council of Ministers of the Environment all got together and said, look, we need to standardize this. So we have that benefit, uh, but there are other nuances. You know, if you're doing work up in Northwest Territories, either you're going to have some different change challenges there with just climates versus dealing with the same issue in an urban setting, downtown Toronto. You mentioned uh, earlier tightening standards, and I know that everybody says every five or six years there there's a, a further tightening of standards. So since you're starting the career, like what was it like back at the beginning? Were ESAs, which are environmental site assessments, were those mandatory in your first year working in this industry? Well, the the concept, the at that time more compliance auditing. You know, it was a uh, it was a big thing, but mainly at industrial levels. And I think what really happened is um, the financial institution, again, the, the, the big banks got together and said, we need a little bit standardization. So these ESAs, as you call them, the environmental site assessments, they needed some standardization. So the banks got together with the technical individuals, got together with the province and said, we, we really need a guideline. So those guidelines came into being. And um, initially, especially from the phase two, that's the what we call the intrusive work, the drilling, the soil sampling, the groundwater sampling. Um, initially, they just looked around literally the world, and the one area that you could really point to was the oil and gas. So when you look at companies uh, like Shell, for example, the Netherlands already had some standards for the hydrocarbon side of contamination, so we just picked those numbers. Uh, later, we found that some of those numbers were literally picked out of a hat. <laughs> there wasn't much science to that. And I think here in Ontario, one of the things that came about with the um, change in the regulations to tighten things up is the the practice of good science. 
to actually look at these uh, contaminants and say, well, what's the chance that this will actually cause harm to someone breathing these vapors or uh, if they you know, drink water that's contaminated, what actually will be the, the target levels that could cause this one in a million cancer case? And that's where the whole risk assessment approach began. So that's been around for you know, more than 10 years, but uh, you're right. You know, as the science progresses and we get a better understanding, they seem to tighten the regulations and in some cases actually make them less stringent. We've been, you know, fortunate in some cases where the numbers have actually got less stringent. I was going to ask that. Do you find that the thresholds set are reasonable? Uh, my clients may disagree, but uh, in some cases they're very challenging to meet. Yeah. But uh, I'd say the advantage we have here in Ontario is we have this extra layer, the risk assessment option. It's not something that uh, all the lenders or even some of the um, other stakeholders are happy to see uh, just because of the process and the time it takes. But if you're able to demonstrate with the same good science that the level of risk is manageable, in other words, you can uh, protect the workers, you can protect the um, tenants by doing some kind of engineering control, you can actually reduce the level of cleanup. So there are other options, but yeah, sometimes, especially when you're dealing with groundwater and uh, parts per billion, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's challenging. Some specific examples, I, I've, I've seen, um, you know, sites that are contaminated, and I'll air quote that, where the engineer, uh, the environmental site assessment, the ESA, the phase one recommends further testing for things like chloroform that are, you know, naturally occurring, mm-hmm. or, or uh, one that we saw that there was further testing required because there was salt from uh, road salt from the from the trucks, from the you know municipal trucks, and things that you, know, you kind of say to yourself, okay, well, like, I guess I, I agree, or, or I, I appreciate that it may be above a certain threshold or a standard, but, you know, what 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 risk is the road salt really posing to the to the value of that property and to the, the, the functionality and the ability for tenants to reside there, right? Yeah, no, that's a excellent question. And, you know, I completely agree. There are some contaminants uh, that are on that list that, you know, you're scratching your head. You're saying, well, why is it there? And uh, with salts, definitely uh, it's on the low level of concern in, in many cases. And I think this is where uh, the practical approach needs to be considered. We have to look at that. Remember, the legislation, the record of site condition requirements, these target numbers were all there for the change in land use. Uh, Unfortunately or fortunately, uh, real estate agents, um, lawyers, the lenders themselves, the financial institutions have jumped on this almost as a bandwagon and said, well, we want to meet these standards. But the standards were really put in place for a redevelopment purpose. Mm -hmm. So we've now adopted that as part of a due diligence requirement. So we do need to look at it carefully. And there are some lenders, and I think more and more progressive lenders, First National being one of them, where you will actually take the time to look at that. You have your own internal committee where you will debate. And I've been fortunate or (laughs) misfortunate to be, you know, on sometimes the receiving end of that debate and those questions as to really, is this a concern? But that's one of the values that S2S brings. And I mean, that coming back to me, the reason why you founded it in the first place is to be able to have that pragmatic approach to the business side of, you know, is this a true risk or are we just dotting I's and crossing T's because the government says so? That's right. And at the end of the day, that's what I hope, you know, S2S can bring to the table. We can put all the facts in front of you. We can uh, give you our opinion. But uh, if, you know, I always tell a client, you know, if you paint us in the corner and you say, well, is or is not a phase two required? Well, if we're following the legislation or following the guidelines for a phase one, phase two requirement, the answer may be yes. However, you know, what is the what is the overall risk to the asset value? So we would actually look at that from a material point of view as well. I'm always, uh, I'm always surprised at the number of people who on a purchase will say, well, there's environmental from five years ago. The use hasn't changed. Do you really need a phase one? And the answer is yes, of course, you know, we do as a lender, but I would think that you as the buyer probably want this. It's a small investment to make and you're about to make a major purchase. It's not, I don't think out of line to that you'd want it for yourself, but I definitely be kind of people that would proceed with a purchase without one if we would allow that. Yeah. And I think that's what's happening. We're finding clients as well. We're in the same situation where uh, there may be some buyers and sometimes it's the unsophisticated ones or those who really are trying to rush through a deal because the markets to them seem crazy and they just need to, you know, make an asset purchase. And they'll say, well, 
we don't need a phase one. Well, what's the worst that could happen? Right? <laughs> That's the worst that could happen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, well, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and you're right. It's a little bit of insurance to pay. You know, if, as long as you get the right type of report done, um, it's an eye opener. It gives you some information. And for nothing more than getting your financing or putting it, you know, now they're all electronic PDF files. So just filing it away somewhere to have almost a yardstick or almost a, a status quo. This is what the opinion was by the environmental consultant on my property when I purchased it uh, because things change. And then five years from now, you're going for a renewal, the term's up. Um, you probably have to dust that off, but you will probably have to get that updated. There's two directions to go from here. So Ray, I'll let you choose. One is the CSA and just talking about how that impacts the industry at large. Two would be your environmental insurance and, and what that means to you and what that means to the industry at large, for the requirement for you to, to have that type of insurance and what it protects sure. you from. Well, I mean, if we look at the CSA, the Canadian Standards Association, um, it's a guideline. And right. it's been around for a very long time. It's it, been updated. It's federal. It is, So yes. there's a federal federal guideline for all environmental site assessments. That's that right. Correct? And they have one for the phase one component, mm-hmm. which is sort of the site visit, the background review, the historical, the neighboring uh, land use. Which you hear the words non-intrusive. So you're not, you're not knocking down walls or doing any testing or digging holes at that for the phase one. That's right. right. And that's generally, you know, we hope that's where it starts and ends. Uh, that's the... the uh, similar to the appraisal, similar to the balance sheet review to understand what's the potential for environmental concern on this property. Well, it's actually, now that you mentioned that, that you hope it doesn't move forward, what percent does go on to a phase two? You know, it, we've we've been finding more and more are going to phase two, but I think it's because of the uh, product out there. There was a time when you're doing a phase one on an apartment building that is in a residential setting and it's uh, been residential for 40 years and nothing's really changed. Uh, now they're trying to convert that medical building into a residential and it's uh, next to a restaurant that used to be a gas station and uh, you're finding with the infills and the more urban work. So more and more times now we're actually finding the phase one is going to a phase two. Those phase twos, just so we're, we're following along, the phase twos are, are basically subsurface investigations. Typically, you're digging holes, boreholes, that's uh, right. monitoring wells, and and then testing soil, testing the groundwater, and you and you effectively have to dig down until you hit water. Is that is that correct? Yes, that's generally the case. And again, uh, there's a bit of a myth out there that sometimes just getting soil data will be adequate. Uh, again, with the legislation changes. There's now standards and have been for many years, standards for groundwater as well. Um, Someone may argue, well, we're in the greater Toronto area. Uh, We get our water from Lake Ontario. may not be the best place, but I think Toronto's water is the best. But, you know, why do we need to check the groundwater? And I think it's something that the Ministry of Environment and federally as well, they've looked and said, well, we need to protect this asset. And uh, it's something that we do need to understand. Is there contamination in the groundwater? So, yes, in most cases, even in urban settings like Toronto, we do need to get to the water table. For those keeping score, I mean, you get contamination of the groundwater and that's a game changer, you know, in any any acquisition or even refinance or, or just ownership of a property. Because quite frankly, once it gets in the groundwater, there's a high, much higher likelihood that it's now migrated. That's and it. if you're the source of contamination, if, if let's say you've got an underground storage tank that's leaked into the groundwater and that groundwater is now, you know, run off in whatever direction the water table is moving, you might now have contamination spread I guess it goes on and on as far as the eye can see and potentially, right? Yeah. I mean, it does dilute. It does, uh, over time, it can degrade. But yes, if we've had situations where we've had contaminants going literally down the street. That's yeah. when neighbors start suing neighbors. Yeah, and that's just so everyone's <laughs> kind of right. keeping, keeping score. Like, that's that's the reality, right? That's what we're always trying to protect is that, you know, okay, what's the worst that can happen? Well, the worst that can happen is that there's an underground storage tank that's been there for 30 years. It was full of oil 30 years ago, but hasn't been touched, and that oil's been leaking. That's that right. oil's gotten, there's been a, created a big plume, and now it's contaminated all the adjacent sites, and it's in the water, and, you know, you might be liable for millions and millions and millions of dollars of cleanup, not just on your site, but all the adjacent sites right. as well. And as soon as you buy that property and your name goes on title, the previous owner is no longer liable. You're you're now the the culprit, so to speak, regardless of whether that tank was put there 50 years ago by somebody else. Right. And, you know, that's where you do need a good environmental lawyer. But, uh, yes, you could potentially go back to the previous owners. However, uh, the Ministry of Environment, your neighbors, they're going to be pointing the finger at you. And uh, 
that can get costly. Uh, just the investigation phase alone, drilling to delineate to understand how far this has gone, getting permission to get onto municipal property, um, getting onto private properties. It's rarely done, but when it is done, it, it can be almost catastrophic. So we're clear. We're all in agreement here. It's important to get environmental site assessments done. <laughs> yes. Get your phase yeah. ones done. <laughs> and uh, if your environmental consultants are recommending a phase two, there's usually a good reason for it. And, you know, it, but it goes both ways. Uh, I have uh, great clients. They're very challenging as well. They will ask me point blank, why do I need a phase two? I've done my phase one. I've done my due diligence. Do I really need to go the extra yard? And that's where we discuss it. That's where I put the information out there to them and they can understand what the risk and liability is. It has to be approached pragmatically, right? Yes. Like that's, that's ultimately the where you're coming from. Yeah, some people just view it as a do the bare minimum to get uh, the thumbs up and then move on with their lives. But I, I know that uh, I've spoken with our First National lawyers about it before. And when we're when we're negotiating commitment letters with borrowers and looking to make changes, that is one section that does not like to be changed or touched for the very reason that you know when the lawsuits start flying, the the uh, lender is going to be involved. So that's uh, you know where our concern gets into it. But you can you can absolutely you know, ruin a property's productivity, uh, ability for resale, um, income. Tenants can have clauses where they can leave if there's cases of environmental issues. It's it can be an absolute disaster. Yeah, and uh, you know we've been involved in a number of cases where um, we're finding now, especially the national and regional tenants, those uh, who have very strong environmental policy and uh, governance, they will say before they sign a lease that. There's, is there any contamination on this property? So you may want, you know, that favorite uh, coffee uh, brand on your street uh, or on your site, and uh, they'll say, "Well, we want a phase one." You want to f- hold on to the rope on that one. It's likely because of unionized workers and and requirements and their employment that they're not exposed to yeah, certain liability. types of yeah, and their liability. I mean, it probably goes goes keeps going deeper and deeper. So uh, so other than. Aaron's townhome development. What's the worst environmental <laughs> disaster you've encountered in your in your career? Well, well, um, unfortunately, you know, it's it's been. There was a time uh, in my past life before S2S, we did a lot of work with the uh, oil and gas industry, and uh, just from the nature of the the volume of the products that they deal with, bolt stations especially, we've seen some pretty um, horrendous environmental uh, issues and. It's not just a question of on their property. It gets into the natural environment. It gets out into the creeks. It's now affecting wildlife habitat. It's affecting neighbors. Uh, We've had situations we've had to start investigating and digging backyards. And um, even to the point where our client ended up having to buy private properties to try and manage and mitigate their concern. It was actually cheaper to do that than continue with the cleanup. So, uh, yeah, it's a doom and gloom story, but uh, fortunately not too many of those. And that's typically not in an urban setting, it sounds like. Actually, it was. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, but it was a time when the price of the houses were not quite where they are today. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to talk about um, other products that S2S offers? I mean, you, you do do building condition assessments. Um, you do have other engineers on staff yes. that aren't specific to environmental. And, and of course, uh, energy efficiency audits you also perform. Right. Well, one of the things, um, you know, we we started S2S, like I said, with the idea that we want to provide that full service to the, uh, to the real property sector. And we quickly found that, yeah, there's a roof leak that's occurred. So now all of a sudden they've got potential for mold. So we have the indoor air quality specialist to take a look at that for indoor air uh, mold and um, related areas. We also do have the property condition or the building condition surveys, which, um, you know, especially with the CMBS or the, Mm -hmm. you know, the securitization products that um, are sort of gaining traction again, there's a real need to understand the asset value. You know, you've got a industrial building, you've got maybe a hundred thousand square feet and uh, to replace that roof could be a million dollars. So, you really need to understand what is the condition of that asset over the next 10 years. So we do that kind of work as well. And uh, more and more, we've been getting into the energy audits as well. And uh, there's sometimes there's incentives out there, a little bit hard to grab sometimes. But uh, again, if the client can see a benefit, uh, sometimes it makes sense to actually upgrade. Yeah, those energy audits are interesting. And um, First National is, is exposed to that that side of your business simply because CMC, uh, CMC financing, if you if you own an apartment building, they'll offer rebates and, and discounts on the pricing for 
uh, sort of discounts on, on the rebates or the, you know, increase in the loan amount uh, for performing the right types of energy uh, efficiencies. And that can be anything and everything from toilet replacements to roof replacements to window replacements to faucet right. aerators. It's, it's an I mean, excellent it's really program. Interesting. Yeah. It is. And it's one of those things that I think with uh, the right marketing and the right uh, you know clientele to understand that if you're going mm-hmm. to be upgrading your washrooms anyway, if you're going to be uh, you know replacing your windows um Now's the time to take yeah. A look what S two S does is they'll come in and do a do a full building review. Yes. Right. And and basically give you a report that says here if you do these five things or ten things you're going to improve your efficiency by X. And it's it is not a you know you know testing the wind with your your finger. It's very scientific, right? They're, you're getting down to the the cubic meters of water that you'll save if you if you do these improvements or or whatever the variables may be. And, and those, specific to utilities typically. Exactly. Right? And those engineering calculations are important because that's what CMHC and you know other agencies that are willing to offer rebates or some you know relaxed financing they need to understand that yeah even on a sorry adam even on a on a if you're on an acquisition or disposition if you're selling your asset knowing that you've got that in hand here are the things that we've done so you're going to see uh you know improved cash flow or, or decreased expenses in the long run right that can increase the value of your asset and do you, do you quantify it to the point where people could look at it as an investment proposal if you spend x amount of dollars on your property you will realize x amount in savings. absolutely at the end of the day that's what uh, everyone needs to understand is the bottom line uh, i'm going to spend x dollars when am i seeing my return and does that make sense and i think with First National being able to help on the financing side of it, it almost becomes a no-brainer. Yeah, it really. I mean, I'll just speak to this too because I, I I've seen numbers of them through S two S, and it's um, you know, let's say you put in, I'll make numbers up, but follow me for a second. Let's say you put in fifty thousand dollars of improvements, which is going to result in sort of fifteen percent savings annually on your expenses. You know, you can work that backwards. You, know, you probably get that fifty thousand dollars back in the first four or five years. But of course, I mean that that expense, that decrease in expense, impacts your NOI, your net operating income, which you know divided by market cap rates is going to increase the value. So it's not necessarily the cash flow you get. You get an increase in value of ultimately sometimes hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, simply from spending fifty fifty k. Right. Yeah. I was uh, at the apartment conference uh, last September. The Informa Real Estate Forum. There, they run an apartment conference. And one of the panelists there is uh, they were discussing, you know, how can you justify buying apartments in such a low cap rate environment? And they said it's not just, uh, you know, a cash flow or a cash flow that you purchase. You can affect that. You can change it. And part of what they do is buying, you know, they buy it at three and a half cap or whatever crazy cap rate is in the market right now. But then they can improve that return through investment in, you know, serious capital expenditures and energy efficiency. Right. And we've seen some crazy numbers because... Uh, there's still, you know, your, your very desirable three-story walk-ups, which uh, everyone's looking for and uh, in the right area, and they're still running on baseboard heaters, electric baseboard heaters. And you look at the efficiencies to switch that over and some of the rebates that are out there, uh, you could really use that as, you know, increasing your cap. There are, there are a lot of apartment owners now that that's their target, right? They're looking for, you know, older buildings that have been managed for 30 years by the same family that just haven't taken the time to put in new, um, new high efficiency lighting and, you know, new low flow toilets. And next thing you know, that three and a half cap or three cap or two and a half cap becomes a five cap pretty quickly, right? It does. Yeah. yeah. That was the gist of the panel and they all agreed on it that, uh, that's kind of one of the ways you can finesse it with, it's under the umbrella of professional management. So there's a few different ways that they can, uh, kind of increase yields, but that was a big, a big factor in it. And I think one of the things that we found working with First National, you can, and I don't know the exact uh, program details, but you can find a way to actually get that financed as well. Uh, yeah, that's right, Riaz. First National will actually bridge finance the, the the capital expenditures. So if you're buying a property that, that you think needs the environmental efficiency uh, improvements or or refinancing and you think that it's something you can take advantage of, uh, certainly, you know, we'll do the, the bridge financing and give you the, you know, a, a proportion, if not all, uh, a proportion of, of the capital expenditures needed to do those improvements. So you really, it's not no out-of-pocket costs. And, you know, obviously the end game is, of course, to get your get your uh, cash flow up and then do either a senior see financing or some sort of some sort of term financing if we can get back to you know, kind of your, your your bread and butter which is contamination um <laughs> can you highlight where we would see less obvious signs of contamination i know if, if i go to a property and i kind of uh, picture what's going to happen when the environmental group comes in and you see a gas station right beside it well that, that's pretty obvious you know you're going to phase two but uh for people that are you know own properties what's what's kind of less obvious signs of contamination sure. that they would see well, one of the things that we've always had a challenge with is the urban landscape, how quickly it changes. 
So having the historical information and being able to get that data um, is very important. So we've been on sites that you're looking at this plaza, it looks great. There's no dry cleaner on site. There's no gas station anywhere to be seen. And across the street, you've got this uh, vacant lot that's chain link fenced. <laughs> so, you know, for us, that's a telltale sign. For others, it may just be, oh, there's another potential future development, or maybe it's grown over now, it's a greenfield. And this is where you have to be careful. Uh, there was a time where um, the phase one was almost uh, an option, you know, many years ago where the account manager at the uh, financial institution would do a walk by themselves and do what they would consider a phase zero. They would walk across a site and they'll say, well, everything looks pretty good here. We're going to approve this one. And unfortunately, with the market turns, uh, you end up with a default on a property. Uh, we get called in to do a proper phase one and we find out that across the street that, you know, vacant lot that looked like it was just a green site is actually a former gas station that no one's actually ever cleaned up. And even worse yet, it was owned by uh, an independent, which isn't around anymore. And um, you're stuck. You now have to do an investigation. You have to spend some money and you have to understand what is the real asset value. And uh, that can really be an eye-opener for some people when they just uh, take a quick look around and say, everything looks great, I'm going to move forward. Just for context, what does it cost, you think, to do mild remediation? Well. Uh, and use use cubic meters of soil <laughs> or something if you want to add, if you want to add some variables well, to it. If, if you put things in perspective, so what is one cubic meter? So one meter by one meter by one meter. So it's not that large. I mean, it's it's a cubic meter. What is that? Well, that's two tons. And you want to send one ton to the landfill, just the trucking and the uh, tipping fee is going to run you somewhere anywhere from a low of $35, $40 up to potentially $60 or more just for that one ton. So now you've got to add in an excavator. You've got to add in your environmental people. You've got to add in shoring if you need that. You've got to add in the replacement material you've got to bring back. And slowly you can, you know, you can see that that uh, dollars per ton can be easily $100 a ton when you add in all the other factors. So now if you have a 1,000 tons you need to get rid of, um, there's $100,000. Mm-hmm. It, it adds up very, very quickly. So, uh, And then if you have groundwater contamination, uh, how do you manage that? So there's a number of times... You know, we want to get in there quick and leave quick as well. We want to, you know, as the client would ask, can you just get it dug up and I'll have a clean site and then I move on. And uh, you find that, no, you can't do that. You have to look at other options. And fortunately, they are. There's what we call the in situ method. So uh, that's taking more and more um, off a front line, looking at chemical injections where you actually inject certain chemicals into the ground and you try and neutralize the contamination Mm -hmm. that way. Uh, It's a science. It's not a perfect science, but uh, there's a lot of ways and there's a lot of companies out there that can do it well. So that's another option we've been looking at. Just just to clarify, I mean, when, you, when you're when you doing remediation, you, you don't really know what's down there, right? You've, you've dug a hole, you know, a little borehole, and you've done some testing and you know that it's there and you kind of have a sense. Maybe you've, you've dug four boreholes and you kind of have a sense of where the, the, the contamination exists. But until you start digging, you, you really don't have you, a sense. You don't know how far deep it goes. Often you don't know how wide it goes and you're kind of just you know, eyes closed and digging until until it stops smelling bad, right? Is that ultimately the way it works? Uh, we've had situations like that, yes. And that's where, you know, we will actually sit in front of our client and advise them, advise them strongly that, you know, the first three holes, let's say, if we're fortunate enough that uh, we're able to get three holes in the ground as part of the phase two, we're able to understand which way groundwater may be flowing. We would explain to the client that, look, you, you may have a hit in one of those holes, but Maybe we were lucky or unlucky. You know, we just happened to hit that location. We need to delineate. We need to do a few more holes because uh, even though however painful and expensive it may be or or in some cases it may seem as a waste to drill more holes just to find out is it going one, you know, one foot this direction or 10 feet in the other direction, it's a lot easier to do that than, like you said, you start digging a hole and now you keep on digging and you find out that you're right up against your property boundary or you're heading towards your foundations and you need to shore that up. Um, now it gets extremely expensive. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Riaz, about one of the better known environmental disasters in Toronto, and that would be the Portlands. Uh, for anybody not from Toronto, is just east of downtown, and the area has seen some development recently, but not a lot. I believe we've even discussed it in previous episodes. But I guess it was it was Domtar, you know, in the twenties, thirties, forties, engaging in unbridled industrial uses no no checks and balances no uh no contamination control 
And now, of course, it leaves the property just wildly contaminated. So you have these just you know, large acreage right beside downtown Toronto that has not seen any development. Uh, what do you see for that site? Do you see okay. do you see a, a government intervention in the cleanup, or how can we unlock the value in that in a huge piece of land? Well, first of all, actually, um, I have a history there because uh, when I started back in the 80s and 90s, those are known as the Atari lands. For those who might remember that, uh, there's been a significant amount of investigation. So you're right. There's a very good understanding of just how much contamination is there and what type of contamination is there. The question is going to be, how do you clean it up? I think there has to be intervention with the government agencies. They they need to get involved and uh, maybe do these... uh, private-public partnerships, we need to you know, get some private individuals in there who have vision to see what they can do with it. And you need good environmental consultants. There may be opportunities to keep the contamination where it is and manage it. Uh, it's not from a, you know, it's a hot potato from a public point of view because you're really not moving the contamination anywhere, but it just may not be cost-effective. It's been decades and nothing's been done. I mean, we've got when the Pan Am Games and the Athletic Village, uh, they encroached into some of those areas and did some cleanups. So there is some use of these areas, but uh, it's a challenge for sure. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what happens. At some point with Toronto's land value increasing and increasing, that will almost force the hand of somebody to intervene when they see it sitting there. Right, but, uh, and whoever's going to figure that one out, right? <laughs> yeah. But I, I do agree that some of the risk probably should be put on the government because private individuals do not want to take it on. Right. And who's going to finance that? At the end of the day, that's the question. So maybe that's where the government comes in as a financing body. Guarantees the loan or something. Exactly. We'll do it. (laughs) Done. (laughs) So Riaz, if we can ask you, if you were to travel back in time, what two pieces of advice would you give to your younger self while you were desperately looking for a job and uh, trying to get in the industry? Okay. Well, (laughs) uh, two pieces. Well, the first one you know, now with all these years of experience I have behind my belt, I would say is buy real estate. <laughs> Don't worry about... Not uh, now, but before. Yeah, yeah, but before. Yeah, we're talking decades <laughs> No, no, still here. buy now. No, no. <laughs> so yeah, buy whenever you can afford it. Buy the real estate and hold it and don't worry. The prices will go up. So I think that's one bit of advice for my younger self. But seriously, um, I think looking back, one thing that I would like to give the advice is uh, get focused. Get focused early in your career. I was fortunate that I ended up in the environmental consulting area, but it was, you know, a bit of the Wild West. Uh, We're talking about the late 80s, early 90s, where uh, there was a lot of different options, a lot of things to look at. And um, I was fortunate enough to get involved with a number of different areas. And uh, it took me a little while to find my niche. And I would definitely say that, you know, if you keep focused and you know exactly uh, what you enjoy and you keep on pursuing that, you're going to come out fine. Perfect. Thanks, Riaz. Up next, we've got the news. This is an article from Bloomberg, and it is Wall Street speculators are zeroing in on the next U.S. credit crisis, the mall. Apparently, they've got hedge fund managers down in the States who are betting against commercial mortgage-backed securities, uh, similar to the to the mortgage-backed securities that caused the crash in 2008. They are now betting against that, specifically ones that are holding malls. Obviously, malls are not performing as well as other class, other asset classes in today's market, and people see value in uh, betting against them. Some of the some of the biggest names in uh, the states are involved here: uh, Deutsche Bank, Morgan Stanley. These people, people theoretically are not stupid, so maybe they see something there. And if you want a refresher on CMBS or Canada Mortgage-backed securities and what that means, you can always go to episode four, which has got a pretty. It's- it's later than that, but I'll put the link on the, the show <laughs> yeah. notes. Here. There's an early episode where we we go we break down CMBS and what it means. And actually, Riaz mentioned it earlier about the requirement for building condition reports and you know what happens if there's a million dollar roof replacement, and we cover that as well about you know the requirements for interest reserves and capex reserves and things like that. Very right. interesting episode. And for anybody that might be concerned that we're headed for another crisis, the article does state that nobody is suggesting there's a bubble brewing in retail-backed mortgages that is anywhere as big as subprime home loans. But there has been a a movement of 50% increase in short positions on two of the riskiest slices of CMBS. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. More interestingly, if those that have listened regularly, Adam might be... If you ever listened, one of our first episodes, we talked about Adam and my worst and best days in real estate. And Adam's worst and best day were related to the exact same thing. And his worst day may actually be 
coming to an end. Or yeah. the re- repercussions of your worst day maybe coming to an end. Yep, yep. Ten, ten years later, we are we're or nine years later actually. Sorry, we didn't get quite to the decade mark. Uh, for anybody that hasn't been listening since episode one, which I assume we don't, is we don't, we don't with yeah. you. <laughs> Although I, we we hope you do. Yeah, I I, um, I bought uh, two pieces of property. They were side by side, identical in virtually every aspect. The only difference was the selling date of each was the radical difference in return. the The first property uh, was basically assigned for a 60% markup on value in uh, under a month. Just the, the easiest, sweetest real estate deal you could ever Adam's, imagine. Adam's best day in real estate. Yeah, that's my best day. And then the other property decided to hold and I held it right into the crash of 2008. Adam's worst day in real estate. Yeah. What? And then uh, at that point, uh, I think I explained to them, my, my dad uh, told me that, uh, no, the, the buyers just disappear. Of course, I'd never seen a down cycle. And uh, my, my father had seen <laughs> a few down cycles and said, no, they just disappear. You have to hold it now. And that was 2000 and I guess, well, eight that we had that conversation. And nine years of carry costs later. Well, I ignore that for a second. <laughs> but uh, the property is selling for a hair above what it was originally purchased for. But I think it is a good sales price. I'm happy to see uh, see it out the door, bid farewell, and you know maybe the next one will be better. Congratulations! Yeah, thank you. I do. I do mean yeah. that. Congratulations! And I will. I will crunch the numbers. Uh, I believe if you take the profit from the first one and deduct the carry costs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I am at a small loss, unfortunately. Combined. Combined, yes. Uh, oh, I'm at a substantial loss on the one property. The one, but yes, combined, yeah. you're combined. still at a small loss. Yeah. <laughs> so your worst day outweighed your best day. Yeah, but it was, it was a great learning experience about real estate just to see uh, how, how timing is yeah. really the key. Don't buy land in really small locations. <laughs> That's the lesson. Yeah. Or another lesson in timing, of course, be as Ria said, buy a long time ago. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Note to self. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that uh, that ends my adventures in land in uh, small markets. Rias, thank you very much for coming. This was a great conversation. I, I mean, it may not be the most riveting of comp- topics to some people out there, but it is one of the most important in real estate at large, commercial real estate at large. Yeah. It, it is it is very, very important. And hopefully by listening, you, we've impressed upon you the importance of making sure that your uh, your investment or you know, whatever it is you're doing with, with commercial real estate, that you're thinking about the environmental component because yeah. it, it, it can make or break. Um, it can certainly decrease the value substantially enough that it, it, it deems the site worthless ultimately right yeah. so and the other thing to keep in mind is if you do have a good environmental report hopefully that adds value absolutely absolutely so i want to thank riaz for coming in today it was a uh, you know a great episode i want to thank our listeners for listening i want to thank first national for being our ongoing sponsor if you enjoyed the episode you can subscribe in itunes google play or anywhere really that you consume uh, consume podcasts and uh look forward to the next episode thank thanks riaz you're welcome thank you Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.